0: Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of of Freedom Health Works. Today we're telling a really remarkable story coming from what we term kind of the patient world. And as you can see, as an aside, for those of you watching at home, we did revamp the studios here. So hopefully that's a little bit better picture quality, gets a little bit more depth and Uh, you get to see all of our interior decorating. Uh, So check out our videos online. But I'd like to introduce you to Brandon Hudgens who has an incredible story overcoming disease that was potentially crippling, crippling, excuse me, to his passion, to his career, and really to his lifestyle. And Brandon's such a uh, uh, enigmatic uh, speaker that I, I wanted him to really tell us more about his story. So you don't have to listen to me drone on and on about it. So without much further ado, Brandon, welcome to Healthcare Americana. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Like I was saying, kind of, uh, we were talking offline. We spend a lot of time talking to medical professionals and people out there that are really trying to take better care of people, understanding that, you know, I got my t shirt on today that health insurance doesn't exactly equal health care and that there are so many layers in between that don't need to be there for a lot of good reasons. But I want to focus on your story, again, coming from more of the patient side of it. uh, you know, you have a ton of experience with kind of the status quo, the medical system, and these are again stories that I get excited about. And I think a lot of my listeners would be like, well, "Well, Chris, you get excited over everybody you get to talk to," and that's well, that's true. Hearing from people who have had those experiences in the healthcare system, have overcome you know a potentially debilitating disease. Uh, is really inspiring and really, you know, motivating for a lot of people out there. So give us a little bit of your background and what you're currently doing. Um, I know that uh, the the delay of the Summer Olympics last year kind of threw a, a wrench in your plan. So I'll let you take that and run with it. All right. So I
1: guess the thing that kind of ties all of this and brings, you know, me as an athlete into to your world of, of the medical profession uh, is my rare disease. Uh, I'm Right now, just to give some context, I I turned 34 in in January this year, but 13 and a half years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, a rare disease called granulomatosis with polyangiitis. So if anybody wants to try to spell that, um, (laughs) go ahead. Good luck. Generally, if I'm in person, I'll ask somebody to try to spell it and give away something, but uh, nobody's actually won it, right? Nobody's gotten it right yet off the, you are talking off, to a lot of physicians MB out there tips.
0: though a lot of yeah. a lot of so, medical yeah. minds so i'm sure some of them will be sending an email and yeah. saying, hey that, what do i they'll, win
1: they'll they'll be performing. yeah what do i win um i'll give them a book how about that <laughs> so i was diagnosed with granulomatosis with polyangiitis which is gpa for short uh it was formally known when i was actually diagnosed in 2008 it was called uh Grant uh granuloma tosis, uh but Alfred von Wegner, the guy that discovered the disease was actually a Nazi doctor. So in 2012 or 2013, they actually pulled the, his naming rights. And I guess rightfully so, Um, but yeah, 2012, 2013 is kind of when they were like, "Mm, I don't know that this guy should have this title anymore. So, but also there's in in our world, like a lot of, uh, a lot of, there's 17 different vasculitises and a lot of them had names like that. And oftentimes you find yourself in in an ER and you tell a doctor that you've got this rare disease, and you say something. I've got Wagner's and it doesn't really tell them what the disease is. Um, but by going by that textbook medical definition of granulomatosis with polyangiitis, it will give an actual healthcare professional the knowledge, like, okay, this is what this is. this inflammation of small blood vessels that create granulomat- granulomas that destroy tissue. So, like, the the name's kind of there for them to to break down and figure it out. Because more than likely, especially if you're at a like a minute clinic or a you know like a fast med kind of urgent care. ER situation, and you're dealing with a doctor, they probably read about it in a chapter in, in med school like 15, 20 years ago. So you kind of have to be your own advocate, um, which I had to start learning at 21 years old. Uh, I I acquired a certain set of skills in college and, and in my 20s that uh, most kids are worrying about uh, what they're going to do with their career, what they're going to do with their life, uh, how they're going to pay back their student loans, how they're going to find a job. And kind of in my early 20s, I was battling my health. And so, I learned very well very early on how to navigate the waters of the health insurance companies, which I have pretty much, and I think you might would probably agree on this. I call them the mafia. Like, that's what they're- Cartel. I hear cartel
0: a lot. Yeah, cartel. cartel. Usually a cartel.
1: Yeah. And I'm like, change my mind. Nobody's changed my mind yet. Um, So that point, I also haven't been interviewed by somebody from the the health insurance industry. So uh, but I, I learned to navigate that water. And it's just to give everybody a little bit of background knowledge on what it's like to have my disease. It took them about seven months from the time that I first started exhibiting symptoms to when I was diagnosed. And it started with sinus and breathing issues which tons of people have at some point in time in their life. And not everybody that has some sort of asthma or breathing issue or sinus infection is going to end up with a rare disease. Um, But it took me seven months of getting sicker and sicker and sicker and different antibiotics, different steroids. Uh, I had sinus surgery. None of that stuff really seemed to work. It was only after I had that sinus surgery and went back for my follow up appointment that my uh, ENT realized that like, none of the stuff that he had done in my nose had actually healed and he was like something's wrong with your immune system and so from there it was about i think two or three weeks before i had kind of the diagnosis that i have uh that i got now um you know they had to do a bunch of tests and there's not a definitive test it's kind of looking at the symptoms and looking at some infl- certain inflammation markers like with the ANCA test and the C-ANCA test and um look at some other general information markers to determine like, all right, we think this is what this is. So, uh, you know, April 23rd of 2008, I got my diagnosis. So we're actually about, this is March. So yeah, we're about a month out from me having had this for, for 14 years. So it's been a tumultuous trip. It's, you know, when I got the phone call, I like to kind of tell this story because it's circa 2008 and I was in college. I was a junior. I was actually, watching my sister at a track meet because of course that's where I would be. Um, but I had my old flip phone and I saw my doctor's office was calling me at like six o'clock at night, six fifteen at night, which is like, now we're all used to getting those text messages. Like you've got an appointment tomorrow. But like when, back then when your doctor's office was calling you at six fifteen or six 30, it was not a good sign. And, when I answered the phone, it wasn't just one of my doctors, but two of my doctors, they were together in the office and had me on speakerphone. And it was like the, are you sitting down kind of thing? And I was like, well, yeah, I'm sitting down, but like I'm kind of in public. I hope this doesn't oh. go too bad. And that's when they, uh, that's when they departed the information on me and they didn't give me a ton of information right off the bat. They're like, we found a rheumatologist at the Medical University of South Carolina, which for me was a three hour drive away, you know, that we're going to, you know, he's the guy that's kind of the closest to us that your health insurance will, Mm
0: -hmm. you know,
1: will work with. Um, So I either, I either had to go to the Raleigh-Durham area, um, which was across state lines, or I had to go to the Medical University of South Carolina. So they helped me find a doctor and got me set up there at that research and Teaching Hospital, and it was actually a really good experience. That's actually still the best healthcare experience I've gotten. I mean, there's a sign. There was a sign in my doctor's waiting room, and I'll never forget this. That says like, if you've been waiting longer than 15 minutes, please tell the receptionist. <laughs>
0: like <laughs> you don't see like, you, you don't you don't see that
1: anymore. <laughs> you don't see that anywhere ever. Um, and as far as I know, that's still how that system operates. They've they've got stuff down pretty. Pretty regimented there. They like when you would see a doctor there too, like because they're all part of that hospital. You would get like there was one time I would I I saw like three different doctors in one day there, because I saw an eye doctor, an ear doctor, and then my rheumatologist. And when I get the bill, it's one bill. It's not 47 different bills, three different labs, you know, four different scans. It's like an itemized thing that I can actually look through. That's not been my experience since then with a lot of other places, but Dr. Brown down there took, took very good care of me. They got me at, at the time um, the treatment regimen was uh, six months of cytoxin, which is a chemotherapy drug orally taken every day with high, co- high doses of corticosteroids, which is prednisone. Um, uh, funny that we are kind of talking about this type of treatment right now, because that treatment um, was developed in the late 1980s by a guy named Dr. Anthony Fauci. Hmm. Uh, He was the first doctor uh, with his team of researchers that actually found uh, a treatment regimen that would put my disease into remission Hmm. because prior to that, um, it had about a 95% death rate one year after diagnosis. So um, yeah. So obviously I'm kind of team Fauci. (laughs) You know, I think he certainly had some stumbles here recently, but um, that treatment was still the standard care of treatment up until about 2013 when we got an immunotherapy drug. Uh, called rituxin, um, and so I spent six months on 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 the cytoxin I was able to get off that. Finally, get off of corticosteroids. And you know, during all of this, running had been ripped away from me. I'd been a Division One level athlete um, at a small school in my in my hometown in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I all I wanted to do was get back to running. And now I kind of had my. And this is probably a terrible person to look up to, but like, I had my Lance Armstrong moment. I was like, I'm going to beat this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to get back out there. I'm going to be better than I ever was. Um, I had been out for two years at that point, but I was like hellbent on getting back. And my doctors didn't tell me to, that I couldn't come back. So I, of course, just put my nose to the grindstone. Um, I actually transferred universities. I was done with uh, undergrad school. Somehow I finished I actually finished college during the middle of all this, you know, I'd had problems with, you know, because they'd given me a, um, you know, they'd been giving me a bunch of biking and stuff for pain. So I ended up with a little bit of a pill problem at one point because like they're just, you've got multiple doctors that are giving you a bunch of things and you don't really understand the dangers of what you're, you're doing but like I realized the thing that got me off that was like it was affecting my running when I was trying to come back and I was like I need to stop taking these and so because like with the with the inflammation that I had just sometimes even moving and walking um, even though it affects primarily my upper respiratory tract and my kidneys um, the general inflammation can make walking sitting standing laying down anything kind of extremely painful so you're trying to mitigate pain And so that stuff had been given to me. So, you know, I had a little, little problem with that, my senior year of college. So my junior and senior year of college of undergrad is kind of just a black hole. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot going on personally, a lot going on, you know, as I was trying to navigate the waters of having a potentially rare and deadly disease and fighting that. But once I got on the other side of it and I realized I was gonna be able to kind of exercise and run again, I was like, well, and I ran a mile for the first time without stopping, I was like, all right, I can, I can do this again. And so I went to graduate school at Appalachian state, studied exercise science and the NCAA granted me two years to an extra year to finish my remaining two years of college, which is the magical sixth year. Um, so I was a, <laughs> I was a, I was called grandpa on the team at app state. Cause I was just the old
0: guy sure. I had 24 so the, years old. You got the double <laughs> victory lap in there.
1: Yeah, I got the double victory lap, but I did manage to get a double degree. So, at least I was, you know,
0: not completely not wasting yeah, my you time. Yeah, did uh, do the Van yeah, Wilder I was, plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wasn't on the Van Wilder plan. Um, although that did kind of, I remember trying to talk to a girl one time, my last year there, and she's like, oh, my God, you're so old. And she just like turned around and walked away from me. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, Ouch. next. Ouch. Yeah, but yeah, so I, I finished graduate school and um, running. I was actually better than than I was before I got sick. I was able to qualify for the first round of the NCAA championships. As far as an individual standpoint, um, from a team standpoint, we didn't lose a conference title while I was there. I helped us win six conference titles over those three years in cross country, indoor and outdoor track. I was part of six championships while I was there. Um, So it was, it was a fantastic experience That's 2011. Um, The time that I ran in 2011 at the end of the year and the 1500, which is the metric mile, which is what they run at the Olympics and stuff and the Olympic trials was about two seconds away from qualifying for the Olympic trials. And I was like, well, I got to go for this. And so um, with not really any support, I got a job at a a bed and breakfast in in Boone, North Carolina, where Appalachian State's at um, with a buddy of mine that was part of a professional training group up there. He helped me get a job and I was kind of training alongside them for a bit. And my assistant coach from Appalachian State, James Snyder, started coaching me as soon as I graduated and made a trip to Boulder, Colorado, trying to like chase this dream and uh, ended up back at home, broke on my parents' couch, Uh, lived back home for about six months and trying to lead up to the Olympic trials in 2012.
0: And I had my first relapse. Let me stop there. Let, let's make sure we can catch our breath because you were yeah. for, you know, four years of your life living with a yeah. very deadly disease. You said 95% fatality rate within the first year before, you know, some yeah. of the advanced treatments came along here. And here you are, you know, current day, 13, 14 years later, still doing well. So, I mean, that just that in and of itself of having a 5% survival rate, graduating college, um, even though you might not remember some of your 300 and 400 level courses, battling addiction nope. from opiates, uh, and then getting back into it, you know, having a successful um, remaining collegiate career in and of itself, admiral as hell. Like, kudos to you. That's that's <laughs> incredible. What are the odds of, of somebody being able to do that? So I just want to make sure that we we pause right there so that, you know, everybody can kind of say, well, wow, this, this is a story about overcoming such odds and such adversity in and of itself but it sounds like you're gearing us up to you know kind of the the double fall here and so you get back from the boulder colorado you get back you didn't make the u.s team in in 2012 um nope. so you're back home didn't even make the olympic trials i didn't even like get the chance to go try to try <laughs> so there goes there goes a childhood dream you know something you dreamed about yeah were, oh yeah uh, uh, first started running competitively, what is that like from a mental standpoint to miss out, to come so close, come two, three seconds away from getting a chance to go compete with this nation's best runners, and then missing it, coming so close, and then knowing that I can do this, but now you have to wait four years. What the hell am I going to do in the next four years? And then, oh, by the way, you have this potentially deadly disease that you're still battling.
1: I started experiencing a lot of mental health issues in that 2012, 2013 time. I mean, I'm a super type A personality, Um, obviously very driven, as we've kind of found out through the the last few minutes of me barreling through the early parts of this story. Um, (laughs) That can also be a double edged sword. And that definitely happened. And uh, in 2012, I had my first panic attack. (laughs) I didn't know it was a panic attack, but I actually completely, I was at my parents' house and I completely broke down and I was like, I can't keep training like this and not knowing what's going to happen with my health. This is just such a, it was such a, a monumental letdown for me. Like I literally was taking ripping posters off the walls and throwing all of my running stuff in the garbage can at my parents' house, like outside. And of course my mom's in tears, my dad's going, and my dad was my high school coach. So like, he's been part of this journey with me. And, you know, I mean, still to this day, my, you know, my dad, like when I have a good workout, I'll call him and tell him. So like there they've been, a my family's been a very, very integral part of this story. And here I am just like Canning it all away. Now, luckily, my mom, of course, pulled everything out of the trash. (laughs) But um, but yeah, that's when the mental health stuff really, really kind of started for me. And I didn't I didn't know what I was experiencing, but I at that stage, that like white knuckling life and trying to just like bear down and get through it kind of started turning into this roller coaster of extreme highs and extreme lows. And that would honestly really go on for another year year and a half before i was actually diagnosed with anxiety depression (laughs) and panic attacks um and when i had another panic attack in 2013 i had moved back to boone and i was working and 2012 2013 was kind of on and off again with with my health and trying to get things into remission and that's when Rituxin, which is the immunotherapy drug came into came into play and after going through some early treatments and stuff, not looking particularly great. And your doctor's looking at you being like, I, if this doesn't work, we don't know what to do for a 25 year old, 26 year old. The impending sense of doom kind of closes in. And at that point in time in 2013, living on some friends' couches in the mountains, valeting cars like at a resort and, you know, drinking beer every day and partying and having fun and, like had given up running completely, was gonna try to find some some kind of job in the running world. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And it was literally late early fall, mid fall of 2013 that like through some runs with two of my best friends, I actually remembered that I missed it. And I had been battling my health for so long that I I forgot how much I actually just loved running. And I was like, I'm not done with this. And then from pretty much late 2013 through 2016, it was it was hammered down. But in that 2013 time point, you know, I started on they started me on two different meds for anxiety and depression, and I went through a couple more before we finally landed on some that worked. And then I was also on Klonopin, which turned out to be a terrible idea, especially when they were telling you, "We'll take it anytime you feel." anxious, which was all the time. And so, you know, you're taking crap loads of that stuff. And I actually started taking so many of it. I found myself a couple of times just walking on a run, which is not something that I've ever done in my entire life. I would just be like head in the clouds and I couldn't, I couldn't stay focused to run.
0: And how many pills were you taking each day? What's your guess?
1: Probably. And I don't remember the milligrams on the, the clonopin. I think it was, uh, I think it was five or 10 milligrams of the clonopin. I was probably taking at least six or eight a day. Sometimes probably more. Was there other? <laughs> so, were your other? Were you
0: on any other medications at the same time too? I mean, yeah. And so um, full of mental, yeah,
1: physical. I was on an S I I was yeah. I was on an SSRI for the regular stress and anxiety, and the clonopin was for emergency situations. Um, and then at that point, I late 2013, I was still tapering off some of the the meds from from my relapse. So up until probably twenty early 2014 from 2012 to 2014. That, that's when you have to have those pill dividers that like make sure you take everything, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're on prednisone, cause you miss a dose of that. Your body goes kind of into the DTs, which is super fun. That time period was when mental health first came in. And I remember after I landed in a hospital with a, one of those panic attacks and I was on the phone with my rheumatologist who was kind of the quarterback of my coach of my team of medical doctors he was, you know, he's like, we think you, your, your, your numbers actually look good. We think you might be experiencing some like panic and anxiety issues. He's like, which is normal in patients. And here I am, five years into this, and he's like, that's normal with patients. But like, nobody's mentioned that to me yet.
0: That's <laughs> not what you want to hear. So that's not what you want to hear. No, you're, you're having these I, issues like, I, and how do I overcome this? Right. You're, you're a guy used to going out there and being able to set your own targets and your own goals and going out and achieving them. And now they're like, well, you're just going to have to live with this and it's normal.
1: Yeah. And so I, well, I was actually more pissed. I was like, shouldn't this come like, not that they give you a pamphlet, but like, shouldn't this be in the pamphlet? Like, Hey, people experiencing like potentially life-threatening diseases, like experience mental health issues. Like that should kind of be like, all right, you have this. This is also going to potentially happen. And so uh, that kind of led that whole roller coaster um, through that time point. I, You know, since then, I've been able to get all off all of those medications and it's taken a lot of work. I, you know, I, I, I saw I was in therapy for, you know, I saw a therapist regularly for about three years in there. Um, I haven't seen one recently, um, but I've gotten to a place where I, you know, I experienced some of those things, but I've got a good set of tools and skills to help myself through them. And it's a, it's an ongoing and constant battle. And, you know, Mm -hmm. as, as recently as just like two weeks ago, I, you know, that stuff was crawling up my spine and the tight chest and, you know, just dealing with some of the the regular things with life and the stress of the olympics trials coming up in june and the covid situation and that kind of getting closer and closer in my bubble and, and in my world like it just shows up and you know but i now know i recognize those signs and symptoms i have a set of skills that i've developed for me that that help me work get through those with with meditation and breathing exercises
0: you know you said something early when in our discussion about becoming your own patient advocate yeah. and i mean that is so pertinent to anybody who has to seek medical care yes. um, to overcome anything. Give us kind of your take on what that means to you, and you know if you have any other advice for to people out there. Because uh, just as an aside, to color that 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 question a little bit, what we see in our world of direct care is that when people join. A, a primary care practice, that primary care physician becomes your advocate. It's able to kind of translate yeah. what these specialists mean, what these test results mean. But not yeah. everybody has that. Actually, very few Americans have it right now. we are trying to, to grow this. But, you know, in your case, that is so powerful. And you learn that very, very early um, that most people learn that lesson far too late. So give us yeah. kind of what your understanding of becoming your own patient advocate is and why that is so important.
1: I actually talk a lot with other, especially new patients about this, because um, I do some patient outreach work for the for the Vasculitis Foundation, um, mainly younger patients. But obviously, I'll talk to patients of any any age. But what you know, you've got to fight for yourself. That's what that means for advocacy advocacy whether it's fight to get the treatment that he feels right, fight to get the diagnosis. I was dealing with a fellow rare disease patient in the last couple of months that was trying very hard to, to get a diagnosis and get her doctors to kind of, I'm not just tired, I know something else is going on. And, you know, whether it's the boundaries that are set up in healthcare, whether it's, you know, laziness, there's bad people in every profession and there are some lazy doctors out there and there's some bad apples. And, you know, I, I never want to, point the finger at, 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 people like that, but I've encountered them myself. I remember ending up in an argument with an ER doctor one time because one of the treatments I was going through was giving like mimicking chest pain. And so I literally thought I was having a heart attack. And of course I had landed in the ER and I was talking to him. He's like, well, like you've got vasculitis. So you're probably just feeling that. Cause you've got like a good strong heart and you're skinny. And I was like, if it's in my heart, I'm dying and i need i like no that's not what this is like i like i like so you're arguing with this doctor that and you, you know and you realize that he's literally just you basically using wikipedia to try to try to help you with this but like he was basically not wanting to treat me and f- try to figure out and test what was going on and i was he's was like well it's it's in your heart it's not like that's just what vasculitis does and i'm like if it's in my heart i'm about to die and that's not good and not so like i need to you to run tests. there's something wrong yeah with no it's heart. not what you're you want fine. to hear yeah, yeah. So, like, you're trying to argue with a with somebody that's a that a me- is a medical a medical professional uh, about like the care that you need to give, or or whether it's like the time that I couldn't get my immunotherapy treatment approved when my kidneys were shutting down because my doctor was across state lines, and I'm on the phone with not just health insurance companies but also the company that makes the medication that I take. And at the time I was literally on that company's website as a success story and I could not get their treatment. And I nearly lost my kidneys because of it. And I'm talking with a lady on the phone and I'm like, Do you understand the absurdity of the situation, ma'am? And she's like, Well, just because of that, like you know, she's giving you the lawyer ass, you know, the legalese, like answer. And I was
0: like, Yeah,
1: I, I understand that, but I need you to be a freaking human. And understand, like, do you not understand the absurdity of this situation? Like, I need this. I can't get it. And my kidneys are shutting down. And if my kidneys shut down, I don't know if and when I'd be able to get a transplant. And if I can't get that, I'm going to die. And so you... Like you're, you're arguing with these people. And I say this a lot to anybody that I've had to deal with It's not that you can't do it, it's that you won't do it. And those are two very different things
0: mm-hmm.
1: because they put these things up in the way to say that, oh no, we can't do that. I'm like, no, 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 no. no, no, It's not that you can't, it's that you won't. Mm-hmm. It's not that you won't, you can't let me speak to my doctor, It's that you won't, it's not that you can't approve this, it's that you won't approve that. And those are two very, very different things. So you have to fight for those things. And finally, you know, literally I had to basically find that situation. I had to have my doctor find another doctor that could just write a prescription for me, (laughs) like in my own state, because, you know, the mafia wouldn't approve my care for an on label for like, just because it was across state lines. So, so yeah, that's what you have to do. You have to fight for that stuff. And it's, it's, you know, I've, I've certainly, there's been some times i've lost my cool for for sure especially as somebody that's a little bit type a and hot headed and then when you're dealing with seemingly life or death situations uh I, you know luckily i've never gotten to one of those like john q moments where i've walked in with a gun in any place but like you like start to understand why he got to that place um
0: and hopefully, it never comes to that. But <laughs> no, 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 I, I totally, yeah, I, totally yeah. I totally, no, I, I, I joke, but, uh, yeah, it, it is just frustrating because people, like you said, just be a human being, and I yeah. think that's one of the biggest things missing from this healthcare industry, uh, as we call it, and you know, you use the term mafia. We like to call them the insurance cartel. You're just uh, you're a piece of paper to them. Your numbers on a paper. You've given yeah. that, and then you know, you get to the hospital systems and. You know, I, I always say this, that this country has the best medical professionals out of anywhere in the world from our training system. And, you know, there's a reason why only the best and brightest are going into medicine and able to come out the other side of it. But even they're being treated like absolute dog, shit. pardon my language, but, uh-huh. um, you know, t- and then that just passes down to the patient. So, mm-hmm. and a lot of the physicians we talk to say, look, Chris, I just don't have time to spend with my patients, to answer their questions and to walk them through this. Or, you know, God forbid, we actually sit down and research something and find the best path to care that we possibly can. Has that been something that you've experienced too? You know, this this four-letter word that is time spent with medical professionals?
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, obviously I'm, and I could be wrong, but like the average doctor spends less than seven minutes with a patient in the room.
0: Mm-hmm. It's about that, and Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's roughly about that number. I haven't checked on it in probably a year or two, but I doubt it's changed <laughs> much. Um, and when you think in my case that like a doctor is trying to, he's picking up my chart before he walks into my room. Like now, granted, and I like, I have some wonderful, amazing doctors, and, and there's two of them in particular that I really like, or three of them in particular that I really owe my life to mm-hmm. um, because of their willingness to push boundaries, because their willingness to be curious and take me at my word when stuff was going wrong. Um, they're amazing people that I like, I honest, honestly might not would be here if I didn't have them on my team. Mm-hmm. And luckily enough for them that my, because of how bad a lot of my stuff got, like th- when they're picking up my chart, it's not like, oh, I kind of remember this person. It's like, I had a lot of them cell phone numbers. <laughs> I had their email addresses. So like it got to that point with them, but certainly some of my other doctors that I've, that I've been involved with over the years, it's like you walk in and you're just, you're, you're a, you're a number on an assembly line. Like you're just, they're they coming pick up in. The, and chart, like, oh, that's the things, first time yeah. that's first
0: time they talk yeah. to you is like, okay, Mr. Six uh, Mr. Right Hodgkins, Mr. Uh, Hudgens, yeah. What, what, whatever. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they're, yeah. And they, they come in and they're like, so tell me how it's going. And it's like, didn't I just do this with the nurse? Like, why am I, like, why am I regurgitating the same information over and over again? But mm-hmm. so certainly I've had that experience a lot. Um, luckily once I kind of found my core team of doctors of like real, like my ENT, um, my mm-hmm. rheumatologist, and then my, my kidney doctor, those three guys, like I've got their direct contact information <laughs> and they've, been involved enough in my care that like they can spend more time with me. And mm-hmm. they've been, it's like, if I say, Hey, I've got stuff going on. I need to get in. Like I can shoot them a message and they're like, come today at 1230. Like, I don't have to deal with the receptionist. I don't have to deal with like the nurse's assistant or, or anybody. Like I can. I have direct access to them to, to get in when I need to. Cause they know if I'm coming in, it's because like shits at the fan. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not yeah. because like oh he doesn't feel good. He's got the, he's got the sniffles. It's like oh no, like he's probably about to die. We need to do
0: something. <laughs> it's not the uh, the hypochondriac coming in no. saying hey, there's something. Is this, does this freckle look good on my arm? Yeah, isn't that amazing? Just the amount of gatekeepers who are there yeah. for an absolute reason. You know they're absolutely essential yeah. because just the way a doctor that can't the handle all that. industry is is built. Yeah, most physicians. Yeah. On the primary care level, again, you know, where our world mostly is, although we're starting to expand into specialists, most physicians have 2,500 to 3,000 patients that they care for in any given year. And that is just absolutely absurd. No human being can do that. uh, You know, going to business school, you're taught that the average person can manage about five people, and that's about it. Yeah. (laughs) you, you multiply that exponentially. You're like, Oh my God, how in the world can these physicians, we're setting them up for failure. And you know, if we pick on them, it's because we love them and we need them, but we got to, there's a better way to go about doing this. What's your experience just psychologically when you're able to shoot a text to a physician saying, Hey, I have a quick question for you. And they're able to answer that.
1: Uh, it's meant the world to me because I, I I know those doctors had my back and had m- like, like truly cared about my health. Um, that's I, that's never come into play with with those with my core team. Um, certainly some of the the periphery doctors that I've that I've had to deal with over the years. Um, it's been it's it's been absolutely maddening to not have that because once you get that level of access it, it changes, like it changes your total, like it, and that's where I really stumbled on that. It's not that you can't do this. It's that you won't do this. And so like you, you start to learn how to kind of snake your way through the system and get that, that access you need. Um, but the, the thing that really changed really like plowed a rut through my brain is 2018. I actually got a uh, and I probably should have mentioned him as part of my kind of core team now. Um, although I don't see him often, I've got an integrative medicine doctor who actually studied under my kidney doctor, who is one of the, Dr. Fox, like one of the biggest kidney vasculitis research doctors in the country. He's been at Chapel Hill for 25 or 30 years. He's been doing research on, on kidneys and vasculitis and other kidney to suffer like 40 years. Um, but that integrative medicine doctor got frustrated with the healthcare system after going through school and stuff and doing his residency and decided to actually open an integrative clinic. And so um, I actually have an integrative medicine doctor. And when I went and sat down with Dr. Pentagraph, I was literally sitting in the waiting room filling out the, the rudimentary charts that we are the paperwork that we've all filled out 4,000 times that somehow in
0: 2021, we haven't found a way to streamline that information yet. We get questions uh, by doctors saying, what do I do for a fax machine? And we say, (laughs) if you you work with Freedom HealthWorks, you don't need a fax machine anymore. it's amazing. There's technology around. Yeah. Well, my
1: chart's kind of starting to do that uh, from the, you know, my chart's kind of starting to pull in a lot of that stuff, but still you find yourself filling out the same information. I I was like, can I hand you a thumb drive or something with all this on it? But like, I was Literally, in the process of filling all that out, and Dr. Pendergraf walked out of the back, took the charts out of my hand, put them up on the counter of the receptionist, and said, "Come on." An hour and a half later, I walked out of his room. Wow. He spent over an hour and a half with me sitting in the room talking to him because, like, I had, I had contacted him um, about like some specific problems that I was seeing as I had come off all of these like hard immunotherapy drugs and mm-hmm. stuff, and I was you know, it was a very performance minded. I was healthy. I, you know, cause I had another, after I qualified for the Olympic trials in 2016, of course I had to fall on my face again and get really sick. Um, And so 17 and 18 were really, really about me getting my health back under control um, so I could take another shot at this. And I had some very specific questions. It weren't, wasn't life or death stuff, but like I was having some problems with certain numbers, not wanting to kind of return to the regular things and i sent sent him a quick message because i had actually met him at uh one of the international vasculitis symposiums and found out he was like 45 minutes from my house and so i was like excited meant to 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 be yeah yeah exactly when you're like you're the and kudos to the uh to the vf for like bringing in integrative medicine doctors in 2017 to like speak amongst the other doctors on those panels and uh i was like that's that's a guy i need to talk to and so he, he took me on and it was very much just, he, he's like, he basically did kind of what we're doing. And he just like took the chart and said, like, he's like, I read about you before you came in, but I want to hear it from you. Just tell me everything. And he's like, don't worry about the time. Just tell me everything. And so we went through everything. We went through all this stuff that I've, that I've been with you. And because like, he recognizes that like, so, like some, so much of the problems too of, of healthcare is, is like, it's fragmented, right? I've got all these different doctors Some of them, and I luckily I haven't had this trouble, but like there's a lot of other patients that have literally doctors fighting over what's the proper care. And the patient gets stuck in the middle and they're mad. The other doctor's mad because they think this is right. They they think this is right. And so you get, or you get like, and I've seen this happen too many times. You get a patient that's in rural America that doesn't have a specialist near them. And so they travel somewhere like, you know, the Mayo Clinic or like Penn or uh, Cleveland Clinic to get, you know, care from one of those doctors. And then they, those doctors then like pass on the information to the local person and that local person is like, nah, like I, you know, I've never dealt with this disease, but like, I think this is better because I don't like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like nearly killed patients. And like that, so there's, there's all these problems with it and like the integrative medicine world and is kind of like the direct, the direct care, like, you know, basically he's just on a retainer. And so, like, I, I contact him when I need him, right? And so, and it doesn't matter if I've got the sniffles with my integrative or, you know, I'm dealing with a relapse. Like, he's somebody I can talk to from that. And if, you know, we need to go somewhere outside of him, obviously, he can refer me. Um, but, you know, the integrative medicine world can get a little weird. There's a little, you know, certainly Dr. Pintergaff's not in that world. But, like, when I was doing research on that early on, like, it gets a little (laughs) voodoo-y like you can get people rubbing crystals and, and I'm like, no, I need some medicine. But like, so you kind of have to, you know, be careful with, with, with some of those practices, but you know, it, it, it changed a lot about how I thought about the system because this, you know, I was like, here's somebody that's seeing six, seven, eight patients a day instead of like 50 or 60 in a day. Right. And he keeps, you know, you get that, like when you schedule an appointment with him, you get an hour, you get an hour scheduled. And then they're like, he doesn't have somebody after you. He's not opposed to spending more time with you. Right. So, it's, so yeah, you got to.
0: It's turning patients back into people again. And yeah, something I love. And, and it just underscores how important that, you know, some people scoff at the term, you know, doctor patient relationship and just how important that is. Cause you know, that's not something that's tangible. If people are like, <laughs> well, I want my doctor patient relationship to be write me a prescription anytime I need it. No, no, no. That's not what we're talking about here. It really goes back to what we're talking about, about that magic four letter word of time yeah. and just having a conversation because it, it, a lot of people get stressed. And I think a lot of that white coat syndrome comes from the fact that people only have seven minutes. And so they're trying to think of every question that they possibly have, and everything that's wrong with me. And you get complex cases like yourself. And you know, this is, I, I'm just talking about normal people who go in yeah. for a, a physical and, have a ton of questions. And I'm thinking, why don't you just ask those questions when they pop up and just, you know, have a little text message that that goes to the, your physician. If you can't text your physician right now or call them whenever you need them, maybe you look at changing that care or talking to your physician, you know, it's like, yeah. My uh, my dad has this funny shirt that says, "If you don't talk to your cat about catnip, who will?" And yeah. I'm kind of saying, I'm kind of saying, you know, if you don't talk to your doctor about the the absolute inefficiencies of their care model, who will? Because they yeah. need to hear it from patients on that ground level support. But I want to focus now. So you've had an incredible story. Uh, the the 2010s um, were kind of a roller coaster up and down, and yeah. you kind of had that. Uh, uh, kind of double dip of of back in the depths, and you got to pick yourself back up. So pull yourself out with your bootstraps. Now you have a trusted medical team around you. You found somebody who, okay, I can ask the questions that I have about this disease, but that disease is a very small part of your life. That's not gonna. You're not gonna let that define you. Tell us about your kind of redemption story here, getting back and circling the 2020 uh, Olympic trials on your calendar.
1: Yeah. So as Awesome as it was to qualify for the Olympic Trials in 2016, uh, I didn't handle it very well. Um, I was still very much white knuckling life, and when I got the, to Eugene, Oregon, and stood on the starting line for the There's you got it to, to to make the team. They take they take 30 people in my event to Olympic Trials, and over three different rounds, they narrow it down to basically the the three that cross the finish line in the final. Um, I didn't make the final. I made the semifinal, and I I knew with my talent level and the shape that I've found myself in. I deserved to at least be in the final, which was the final 12 people that were vying for that, those three spots. I didn't handle it well. Um, everything that I had been through over the, those basically previous eight years as a, as a patient um, and a runner, like that was a weight on my shoulders. Um, it was... And it should be stressful, right? Because it's something that you care about, that you've thought about and dreamed about since you were 13 or 14 years old. And I'm not certainly one to say like, oh, I don't like the pressure and stuff, but like I didn't handle it well and it should have been fun and I should have had a lot of power. And what I had been through instead of, it was kind of like a weight dragging behind me. It's still hard for me to watch those prelim races and not just the mistakes that I made tactically, but like I, I, I look heavy. Even though I was like super lean, <laughs> like I looked heavy, I didn't look at my best, right? Like you can tell from my posture that I wasn't health. I wasn't healthy, right? Mentally, and that's when you're when you're going up against the best in the country and ultimately the world. Because like one of the guys that made the Olympic our Olympic team, like he won the Olympic games in my event. He was the best person in the world that year, and so when you're going against those type of people, and you know, and not to disparage my competitors, but like none of them have gone through what I have, and that should be empowering. And so after that, you know, I was like kind of hell bent to get back there and make it what I thought it should be. Uh, Obviously I took a a health tumble. um, And I think a lot of that was basically because of where I had taken my body, both physically and mentally to get there. Um, So, uh, you know, I made a pact with myself and my girlfriend who's been with me for 11 years now. Um, So she's been through the ringer with me and you know, she stuck by me when I was not at my best and a little too into myself um, and just a little too selfish with the, the way that I was acting and kind of just not caring whether I lived or died. Um, I was mm. living hard, training hard, partying hard. Like, I just didn't care because I was like, this thing got yanked away from me and I'm going to do it to the full ex- mm. extent. So we made a pact. It's like, if you're going to do this again, you can't do it like that. And so uh, that's what the redemption part of the story has been about for the last Well, originally from 2018 through 2020, but obviously COVID COVID hit and put uh, gave me an extra year or took an extra year away from me, (laughs) Uh, depending on how you look at a 34 year old body that's still trying to run really fast. Um, Which I recognize I'm not very old, but as far as like when I line up, I'll be eight to ten years older than most of the guys standing on the starting line. Um, It certainly can be done, um, but it's you know Father Time catches everybody at some point in time. So I'm certainly trying to run away from him right now, but. Uh, you know, COVID's obviously prevented some some interesting struggles over the last year as far as training and getting everything I need, and then traveling. Right, um, you know, it, it's it's been tough to kind of figure out what's safe, what's not safe. But those are things that I can, luckily, because of the access that I have to my doctors, I can ask those questions when I have them. I had one the other day about like you know some stuff as far as travel and what they thought was safe and not safe, uh, and I was able to type up a little email and within 24 hours I had the answer that I needed. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's given me that power, it's given me that power to make those decisions, right. As, as, as a patient. Um, And I've, you know, luckily, like we've talked about, like I've, I've had those. And so that, that gives me the, you know, the, the freedom to kind of operate within those, with those rules and boundaries of things that I know to try to keep myself safe during, you know these next couple of months as I, you know, as I venture out into the to to the world that looks very very different.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that you use the word freedom. You know, I didn't I didn't. Uh, you're not getting paid to you know give us a little plug right there, but you know that's why we named our company no. that right, and, and that's why that's why we said this is like there's one word that almost every conversation that I have and our team has with doctors and patients and and people who've used the system is just like. I feel so constrained. I feel lost or I feel abandoned going through the status quo in the system. And I don't want my disease or my condition or whatever it is to define me, but yet it becomes so all consuming. And that's why, you know, I love your story and, and really, you know, my hat's off to you. being able to overcome a disease again with a 5% survival rate when you're first diagnosed. I mean, gosh, how, how inspiring is that? And then to continue to follow your dream, even after stumbles and, and relapses and, you know, this disease just refused to go away. And I, it, it is, it's an incredible story you have, Brandon, it really, really is. And, and I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing it with us. And, and hopefully your work, you know, being active uh, in the VF can help change people's lives and show them that, look, there's, I overcame this and you know, I'm still pursuing my dream and uh, I didn't let a disease win that's very much what, and I, this was not planned by the way. Um, it's just a
1: shirt that I wear all the time, but if, if people can see here, I'm, I'm wearing a shirt that says victory over vasculitis. And it's actually the campaign that I started with the vasculitis foundation in 2016. Um, I wear this shirt because it's super comfortable, but uh, it's one of those <laughs> super soft cotton shirts, but uh, yeah. it just be, it just so happened to be what I put on when I rolled out of bed today. But, um, it, uh, is a campaign that's about empowering patients to continue chasing their dreams after diagnosis because patients honestly don't look like me when most of the time when they're diagnosed. The average vasculitis patient is a mid to late late 40s, early 50s female, actually, it skews 60% female, and it skews older. Uh, so I I because of the mass number of them being vastly different from my background now there's certainly some obviously younger patients and as as diagnostic tools have gotten better over the last decade um that i think those numbers are starting to shift a little bit and i i don't know whether more people are getting diagnosed or whether more people are starting to have some of these issues i don't know which one those are but um it's given me because most of them don't have athletic backgrounds most of them don't have sport backgrounds um they come from the regular American life. And I don't mean that as like insulting, but it, it gives me the opportunity to be like, Hey, this thing punched you in the face. It just, des- you know, it destroyed your finances. It destroyed your family. It potentially cost you a marriage or relationship. It's, it's, it's strained everything in your life. Here's some skills and tools that we've used to empower each other and, and develop a community with each other. Cause you know, it is a rare disease and it's, it's not something like cancer where two or three out of, out of five people are going to Gonna have it, and so it's a it's a you know you're talking about two to three per million, and so it's it's kind of about finding each other and developing a sense of community. And you know, over the last four years, I've I've developed a a close group group of fellow young adult patients that are all roughly late twenties, early thirties, all got diagnosed in our teens or early twenties, and we really lean on each other a lot when stuff's going bad. Cause like, I can say, I can say to them, man, I'm really down and really down in the dumps. This is bad. Like I don't feel good or, you know, and they're not going to be like, don't talk to me about that. Like, don't be a Debbie Downer. Like it's so it's about developing that sense of community. When you can talk to somebody legitimately about the things going on, either mentally or physically with your body and then be understanding and caring it's, and like, you've talked about like treating you like a human. And that's, developing that community has been like one of the biggest like achievements i think in my in my life and and pulling some people together that really are doing some incredible things and in fact like through my patient outreach work you start experiencing things like there's legitimately three people that have been diagnosed with the exact same disease that i have and they knew about the disease because of me before they got diagnosed and when they got diagnosed, they're like, Oh, this is that thing that Brandon has. And so they immediately had a group of people to plug into. And that was really, really powerful when that, when those things happened and came about, it was like, you won't believe just what happened to me. And so, or, you know, one of them I was talking to kind of in the lead up to some of it. And I was like, you know, that sounds like what I have. And certainly you don't want to, I'm not a doctor, you know, I can't diagnose anybody, but like, you know, you need to chase this. And so that's that the, when those kind of things kind of happened, it was kind of like a a sobering moment of like, I've not only have I had an impact on like the small community that we have, but like, that's a direct impact on three people's lives that, Already ended up with a support network because of the outreach that we've been able to do,
0: and who knows how many lives that they are able to touch too. And everything continues yeah. that ripple effect out, yeah, um, keeping going. So, Brandon, hey, uh, keep up the awesome work. Uh, it's amazing to hear your story again, and, and keep touching lives, keep pe- showing people that you know there's a way through this, and. Uh, keep motivating them and inspiring them to, to fight and good luck running the trials here. I know uh, we'll be, we'll be keeping track of you and, and hopefully able to call your number up there and be representing the red, white, and blue. That
1: would be awesome. I, I thank you so much, Chris, for, for taking the time to chat with me today and giving a voice to, to patients and to doctors that are super frustrated with this system. I, I think that's my biggest frustration with the healthcare industry as a whole is that people aren't having the right conversations. And uh, kudos to you and, and, and your team and what y'all are doing to try to make a real impact and, and force those conversations to, to be had and provide some opportunities for people to get the care that they
0: need, man. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And, you know, telling these stories is it shows people that they're not alone and um, nobody operates in a silo. And so there's a huge undercurrent of demand from people who want better care, who want to experience absolute, you know, a, a different way to access medical care and there's a lot of physicians out there who realize that they need to take time with physicians they want to care for people like they know how like they're no they're trained so we'll keep uh we'll keep fighting on our end you keep fighting on your end all right absolutely man thank you so much that's gonna do it for this episode of healthcare americana once again i'm your host christopher habig to check out all of our episodes visit healthcareamericana.com, and to learn more about direct care visit freedomhealthworks.com thanks for listening
2: At Green Imaging, we provide diagnostic imaging procedures that include MRIs, CT scans, and X-rays for half of the average price in a health plan. Most people don't realize that the most expensive place to get an MRI is right down the hall from the prescribing doctor. This is because 70% of doctors are now employed or subsidized our hospital systems. When we get an imaging exam at a hospital-owned imaging facility, the cost of care is three to seven times more expensive than it is at an independent imaging facility. There is a better choice that can save you up to 65% or more. That choice is green imaging. In most hospitals there are 16 administrators for every single doctor. This creates an unnecessary burden on the price tag. By removing this excess, Green Imaging provides diagnostic services typically at one third of the price or less. Check us out at greenimaging.net. Whether you're a
1: patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org.
0: Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.